God's Strategy in Human History. I forget the name of those two Englishmen, something like Marster and Fenwick or something like that. It's very, very good on this subject, but they call it God's Strategy. These two men are not theologians. Now, I got that from none other than the great F.F. Bruce, who wrote the preface for that book. But they do a marvelous job in there, and they call it God's strategy, just what we're talking about here. Now, Winky, when he teaches this, he calls this will freeze. Now, I have had some serious difficulties with Winky over this. I said, will freeze. That sounds like ice cream to me, Winky. <laughs> I said, why don't you call it the theological term so we all keep our terms the same? See? Don't the doctors do this? They, they don't write one prescription in Hindi, another one in English. Of course, it's a cover-up from not knowing how to write. <laughs> but let's call it what it really is, known in theology down through the centuries. Now, I'm not teaching you anything new. This has been in theology books for centuries. You get that? Centuries. This is not new. But most people, have, even people who have gone through seminary, don't really study much theology or much Bible. Do you know you can graduate from seminary and, only, and have less than 10 hours of Bible? And the average one never has over 12. I led a man to Christ who had seven years of higher Christian education, including a seminary graduate. He'd come to me about two or three times a year with a long list of questions. And when he'd drive back to Lexington, Kentucky, in Wellmore, Kentucky, he'd tell me, he said, Harry, I used to get so mad, I'd want to bite that steering wheel too. And he said, what made me so mad was, here I am with all this so-called Christian education, I got all these problems, and I come to you and you tick off the answers to me like this. And he says, it made me mad. And he said, finally I sat down and took inventory one day and found out I only had nine hours of Bible. Nine hours of Bible. Now when you compare nine hours of Bible to what Brother Ed Brewer's got or what Brother Tony's got, and some of you have said under the great Gordon Olson, why Olson has in comparison to these fellows, he has 500 hours. Because he spent 30 hours a week for 30 years doing biblical research. And not to get a DD either. So uh, the average preacher isn't one-tenth as theological as you think he is. And hasn't studied very much theology. If he has, it's usually his particular union's brand. <laughs> yeah, I don't say that to make fun of my brothers or the cloth. I really don't. But let's just call a spade a spade and don't call it a horticulture instrument. Now, in providential government, this is God when he intervenes into the affairs of man. We're not referring not to salvation, but to bring about his eternal purposes from which he will bring salvation. You get that? Now, there was a preacher's daughter in the East Coast. This gave him fits. He had several like her. And one day she ran into some YWAM kids. And these YWAM kids spent a lot of time with her and led her to the Lord and took her back with them to a school of evangelism they were attending. Well, after all of this, she finally went home and her 
her daddy was about beside himself. He had a brand spanking new daughter, and he was so pleased with her. By the way, I wrote her a letter last week. This happened years ago. And uh, he was asking her questions, and she could answer these questions that he just couldn't even begin to scratch. And he said to her, where in the world did you learn this kind of stuff? She said, well, I learned it up there in New Jersey at that school of evangelism of Youth with a Mission. He said, no, who taught you this? Oh, she said, a businessman from uh, Rockford, Illinois, would come there two or three times a year, and this was just one of the areas which he touched in. What was his name? She told him. Picks up his phone, he calls me. Mr. Khan, this is so-and-so. Yes. Do you remember my daughter so-and-so? I couldn't remember his daughter because, look, I've had YWAMers. I've had you kids come through in your vans, you know. <laughs> I've had them 12, 14, I'm called out. When they leave three days later, my wife and I think the locusts have been through. <laughs> And I'm so glad that we've got it, and you kids know that old Uncle Harry there in Rockford loves you, and you're welcome at our place. And uh, I wish those vans were in a little bit better shape, though, Ed, when they get there. It really cost me some dough to get them out of town sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad to do it. It's the Lord's money anyway. This preacher said, can I come and see you? Well, I said, yeah, you can come see me if you can find me home, but I can't remember your daughter. Because we've had hundred, we had 84 one summer. 84, and by the way, we didn't even know they were coming. <laughs> You'll try that on your violin sometime. <laughs> Sit down to eight, four of you, and here comes 10. Then you'll find out if your wife's got the kind of grace she sings about on Sunday morning. I said, now, if you can catch me in town, I'd be glad to see you, brother. So he looked at his calendar, and I looked at mine. We settled on a date. He came into my house on this Sunday afternoon with his dear wife. About 1.30, we sat down. We had dinner. Then afterwards, and by the way, he looked over at that dog of ours. And that dog of ours never comes in the dining room. He never comes in the living room. Set his little paws that far away from him, whining. You sit still. He said to me, he said, Brother, even your dog understands moral government. <laughs> he did. He come in there, he got it. You get what I mean? He knew consequences. You, see, you can not only teach it to kids, you can teach it to animals. Think of that. That little dog, beautiful dog. In fact, my wife and daughters talk sweeter to that dog than they did to me. I don't blame them, it's sweeter. So after the women left and they went in the family room, he starts unraveling his questions. Man, did he have them. We went to 11 o'clock that night. Here's his first question. What would you have said? Who was the greatest preacher ever born of woman? The Bible tells you. John the Baptist. And that's Jesus' evaluation. John the Baptist. He said, now, greatest preacher ever born of woman, Jesus said, nevertheless, the least of you here is going to be greater in the kingdom of God than him. He said, boy, explain that one to me. <laughs> How can the preacher, the greatest preacher to ever live, be least in the kingdom of God compared to those people? I said, well, 
I can explain that to you, but I have to explain a concept called providential government. He said, well, go ahead. So I spent about a half hour explaining to him what I just took an hour with you and showing him that here's God intervening in the affairs of history and he will cause certain people to do things and certain things to happen that they're not free. They may not even be aware. Now, let me show you. When was John the Baptist filled with the Holy Ghost? See if you know your Bible. In his mother's womb. Now, was that because he was a good little fetus? <laughs> Did he have a choice? No. No, he had no choice. Here's God in providential government. He comes to indwell this little fetus. And all through, now get this, his preaching life, his preaching life, there was a divine causation upon John. Why? I'll show you why. Judaism was so perverted, so watered down, so adulterated, it was worthless to God. And it was like in our day, no repentance being preached. They're just telling them to obey the law, obey the law. And by the way, they'd added about 600 laws. They'd gotten the law so complicated, you had to have a rabbi in every family to interpret it. I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Not that the law is bad, it's what they added to the law is bad, as I'm going to show you here in a few days. Nothing wrong with the moral law, and it's for today as much as it was back there. But he needed someone to go before Jesus and preach repentance. By the way, we need him today. But he's got no more than just repentance. So John the Baptist is what we would call an engineering a snubber. That's a shock absorber. He went in front of Jesus preaching and preparing what? The way of the Lord. If you remember the first time Jesus preached, even with all of this great preparation of John's, first time Jesus preached in his hometown synagogue, they came and tried to what? Tried to kill him. And yet it says he spoke gracious words. Not like mine. His were gracious. Tried to kill him. So you see, there was a divine custody around him. A divine protection. And by the way, Jesus never was presumptuous. You remember a year before he was crucified, he said, come on, let's go up to Jerusalem. Jesus said, uh-uh, no, 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 it's not my time yet. See, he never even walked presumptuous. A lot of you guys said, well, I'm God, I can go any place I want. Mm-mm. Oh, no. Jesus was never presumptuous. But here was John. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He's one crying in the wilderness. Is that right? Now, let's get back there and, and analyze. Here came, John the, here came Jesus toward him to be baptized. Right? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Not a Lamb. The Lamb. There's an article there. The Lamb of God that taketh away the what? Sin of the world. Otherwise, he's recognizing Jesus as the what? The Messiah, the Mashiach. And in fact, he said, I have need that you baptize me, not I you. Jesus said, no, the word of God might be fulfilled. He said, you baptize me. And he baptized him. And then the spirit descended like as a dove and a voice from heaven saying, what? My beloved son. You get that? 
a voice from heaven. Now, if the Jesus only is a right, then Jesus was a ventriloquist. You get that? And who is that Holy Spirit over here anyway? <laughs> you get that? Of course, some of you, you, that's a delayed blessing you've got. You haven't run into any Jesus only yet. Jesus only to the people that say there's no God the Father, no God the Holy Spirit, just Jesus only. That's a reverse Unitarianism. That's what it is. Terrible, unteachable spirit comes with it. But if they're correct, then Jesus was a ventriloquist. Well, we all know he wasn't. So he said, this is my beloved son, I'm whom I'm well pleased. Now, John heard that, didn't he? Is that right? Everybody there could hear. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. Now, what he meant was this, my ministry's finished. My ministry's finished. You follow him now, not me. I've been preparing the way in the wilderness. And by the way, all of this preaching, my dear friends, was done under the causation of God. All right, now. His ministry is finished. A few days later, he winds up in the local Bastille. Is that right? The Crossbar Hotel. Because he'd been making cracks, you know, about Herod having his brother's wife. Okay, now, now he sends his disciples over to Jesus and said, Art thou he, or should we look for another? Now, what's the difference? Can you tell me now? After you've had this much teaching, see if you can down around. What's the difference? Keep going, you got her. He had to what? You got it right. He had to make a choice, but he had to make up his mind. his mind for who? Himself. Himself. Who had done it before that? God. God. <laughs> you see that? The causation of God now is off of him. He's over here in jail. And God is no respecter of persons. Is that right? By the way, was his service to God, was it of his own free will? Was he doing it out there because he loved God? No. Now, here's the thing about this, my dear friends. And I look at your faces here, I can think. Every one of you can go from here and serve God because you love him, because he deserves to be served. It's right. It's reasonable, intelligent. And you love your fellow man. And you can bring joy to the heart of God, but none of John the Baptist's preaching ever brought joy to the heart of God. Furthermore, yours will be rewardable. His isn't. His isn't. Why was not his rewardable? No choice. Was not free. It was God in providential government, putting the Spirit of God in him before he was ever born. But this is providential government. My dear friends, if you don't get this right, I can show you 60% of the book of Revelation is providential government, or man doesn't have a thing to do in some of those. So don't go off into symbolism on them. And you can wind up looking very, very stupid with symbolism in the book of Revelation. Not that there isn't some. But I sat down one day and I counted. The book of Revelation is 60% providential government. Or God intervening, the free wills of man here has nothing to do with what he's, what he's saying. But wait a minute. I want you to notice now, the next slide. Now, here's another example of providential government. I want somebody back there to read this. Can you read, by the way, can you read this in the back of the room? Would somebody back there read it? 
And I want you, dear folks, to explain this verse to me. Explain the providential government in this verse. Now, after what you've just had, a simple lesson in it. By the way, in N.W. Taylor's book on the moral government of God, a textbook at Yale, two of them that thick, he must spend 100 pages on providential government. So I've only scratched it here with you tonight. Of course, many of you never even heard of the subject before, right? All right, now, somebody read this for us out loud so we can all hear it. Then I want a discussion. I want you people to explain that verse to me. Explain the providential government in this verse. It's just loaded with it. Now, in the first year of Cyrus the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord from the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Okay, it's enough. It's all providential government. Seventy years before, God had had Jeremiah prophesy that the Jews are going to be delivered. They're going to be emancipated. Why could God have him prophesy something that's going to happen 70 years from now? It's going to cause it to happen. That's right. God is going to cause it to happen. You see that? No great ability there on Jeremiah's part. So he can prophesy something's going to happen 70 years down the line because he is going to cause it. All right, now show it to me in there where he's causing it. It's right in there. The very words. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus King. Stirred up the spirit. That's the what? That's the causation. That's the causation. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. What did he do then? Yes. Now, is there any free will in this? No. By the way, should uh, Cyrus get any brownie points for letting the Jews go? No. <laughs> or should Jeremiah for prophesying it? No. No. Now, by the way, you've got to look out in this now because this is rare. This is rare. I think maybe one time in my life, providential government was in effect in my life. Maybe I'm bragging when I say that. The thing is this, is to be able to realize it in the scriptures and know how God deals with people, not as to how it is in our life. You get it? You know now why, why was John the Baptist, why would he be least in the kingdom of God compared to those people there? Because he wasn't doing it of his own free will. He was, God ordained it, and he just did what God ordained, so therefore there was no reward in that. Yes, but how does that compare to those people that were there? Because they loved the Lord and they wanted to do it because they had made the choice to do it. What was he going to say? They were not the people who built themselves to love God were not um, taken over by the cause and effect. Therefore, they would be least in the kingdom of God compared to that. You see it now? Mm -hmm. He wasn't free. He wasn't free. But we're not referring now to what? Salvation. salvation. See, don't get this mixed up in the realm of salvation. And this is what our Calvinist friends are always doing. They say, see what he did with Pharaoh? See what he did with John the Baptist? He can save anybody, anywhere, anytime that he wants to. What's wrong with that? 
Yes, but what, what else? A lot more. You just scratched it, Fred. Salvation can, one cannot be rewarded salvation for repentance if the repentance wasn't your own choice. Of course. God can't repent for you, can he? That's right. That's exactly what Calvinism does. And let me say this to you, dear friends. You better get your theology straight because if you don't, it winds up in your sociology, your psychology, and your political science. You see that? Don't blame Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, John Ruskin. For saying that man's will is not free, that we, the state, will determine all their actions. We will condition them to do all of this thing. When they could read almost the same thing in John Calvin's Institutes. What they were doing is, Calvin is saying you have no choice in your destiny. Karl Marx is saying you have no choice in your destiny. We, the state, will determine it. Over here it's God determining it. By the way, where's man's accountability and responsibility in both of them? God. My dear friends, these things we're talking about are so serious that if you don't get your theology straight, you'll have a terrible time in psychology, sociology, political science, and many, many other areas because Satan works the same way in all these areas. Relieve man of his responsibility, relieve man of his accountability, relieve him of his free will, if B.F. Skinner was here tonight, the great behaviorist, he'd say, why, well, you didn't choose to come here. You were conditioned to come here. I like to talk about this on Sunday night when you struggle sometimes to get there because you're sick and you're tired. But you, you say, Lord, I'm going there because this is where I belong. And, and I want to tell you, God, I love you. And I want to be with the brothers and the sisters. And I want to encourage them. And my feelings don't have anything to do with it. And did you ever struggle to get to church like that? Of course you have. Of course you have, and that builds up moral fiber in you to do that. You know how it's been a struggle sometimes. And then you went home feeling great, didn't you? <laughs> went home feeling great. So when B.F. Skinner would tell you you didn't choose to go to church, you'd say, boy, get lost. <laughs> but where did he get it? Where did he get it? He came from a Presbyterian Calvinistic background. Karl Marx, daddy was a lawyer. The sad thing is, a Jewish lawyer couldn't get any clients in Germany unless he turned Christian. He turned Christian for no other reason, to make a living. That's a sad thing on Christianity. And so young Karl Marx was raised in the Lutheran church, and when he was 15, wrote a tremendous confirmation paper on John 15. On John 15. So let me say it again to you, dear friends. These things are so serious that we're talking about. If you don't get your theology right, they wind up in sociology, in psychology, and political science, and a lot of other areas we'll talk about before we're finished here. Theology, my dear friends, is still the queen of sciences. Now turn your Bibles to John 11. I want you to start reading at the 48th verse, and I want you to raise your hand when you see an example there of providential government. John 11, start reading at the 49th verse.
You see, do you see? I didn't say it's in verse 49. I just started, said start reading there and put up your hand when you see an example of providential government there. Let's give the others time. You can put it down then. Well, what verse is it in? Anyone else got any other verse in 51? <laughs> well, show me how you get it out of 50, will you? Okay. Okay, now I want you, my friend, come right up here and explain the providential God. You've know, you got to get you used to stand in front of audience. Come up here. I won't bite. I haven't bit anyone for three weeks. <laughs> I want you to explain now the providential government in, in that portion of scripture, if you will, please. In verse 50, Caiaphas is prophesying that it's better that one man would die, specifically Jesus. And in verse 51, it says that Caiaphas did not say this on his own. And that's, that's the key to governmental providence is that God is intervening here, that one is not making a free choice, but that God has, as Winky would say, put a will freeze on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wash your mouth out. So. <laughs> and uh, caused Caiaphas to say this, that uh, all that was prophesied about Christ would come to be. All right, I want to ask you a question. I, I want you to ask him questions about Caiaphas now. You ask him. Yeah. He's not accountable for the prophecy. It isn't clear from this scripture whether he's accountable for Christ's death because there are other moral choices involved. He's not accountable for this prophecy. That's a good answer, brother. Go on, ask him some more. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> he wasn't responsible for the prophecy, and that's all we know from this from the scripture. That's what we had up here. Come on, kids, ask him some more. <laughs> a lot of questions you can ask him about Caiaphas. Yes. What was the point of God having to make So that all he'd said about Christ, that Christ was to suffer and die, would come about. He, because you see in the, in the next verse, it says, he did this, uh, uh, verse 52 says, that after this, they all made plans to kill him. And so that was an initiative point for the planning to kill Christ. Come on. Larry. Do you believe when Christ died and time was realized what he said? I don't know. That's, that's, a, good, that's, that's a good question long. many times. Good answer, I mean. <laughs> good answer. It's a very wholesome answer sometimes. You don't know. Because Caiaphas was in the position to make that statement where, so that people would listen to him. That's right. Have Seems weight. Reasonable. Yes, sir. That's a very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> now, but now here's a question I want to ask all of you. Thank you. I want to ask all of you. Very good. 
Sure makes me think, and especially some of those nice, great questions you ask him, and I haven't been wasting my time today. It's always good for a teacher. Now, I want to ask you this. It caused Caiaphas to say that. Causation. Do you think God caused Jesus to die upon the cross? <laughs> what you going to say? Yeah, but that's not talking about death, friend. I'll tell you later what that is. That's not. What's the cup symbolical of in Christianity? No. Communion. Communion. Fellowship with God. He didn't want to go through this time of separation. That's all. Because he'd been in loving, tender relationship with the Father all through the eons of time. That's what the cup is there, see? He I'll show you. He struggled to get to the cross. That's what he sweat drops of blood. How was the Jews' way of putting a man to death? Stone him. If Jesus had been stoned to death, he'd not died for your sins and mine. Because then he would die of physical causes. He died of moral causes. He died of a broken heart. He struggled to get to Calvary. Struggled. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 5, 7. You'll see this. And I want, I want, I want you to read this. Because if it's caused, then it's not virtuous in Jesus' part, is it? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Hebrews 5, 7. You'll see the answer. To it. Yeah. Who in the days be flesh? What did he do? And he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. And strong crying and tears. He sweat drops of blood over this. He struggled. He sweat drops of blood. Get this, friends, to make it to Calvary. Not to keep from going there, because the Jews would have abused him to death. He would have died of exhaustion carrying that cross. What did God do after these prayers? He brought Simon, the Cyrenian. What did he do? Help carry the cross. He put a protective custody around him so they couldn't stone him to death. <laughs> so he could get to Calvary. You see it now? Now read it again. Now you'll see. He was saved from death. Where? In the garden and up to the cross. <laughs> you see it now? You can't understand that verse any apart from what we've been talking about. Hebrews 5, 7. Who in the days of his flesh? Oh, this makes the death of our Lord so much more. Not because it's prophesied. Uh -uh. No, no. I can show you lots of prophecies in the Old Testament never came true. Somebody read for us. And read the whole thing here. Hebrews 5, 7. See? We don't want to go too far in this causation. That's why I'm bringing this out. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. But he was heard because of his reverent submission. So when, what do we mean, he was heard? What does that mean? His prayer was what? His prayer was answered. Do you get that? So it wasn't, brother, when he talked about the cup passing from him, it wasn't Jesus shrinking from Calvary. <laughs> you get that? Like it's so often preached. They say his humanity is shrinking from Calvary. No, 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 no. But you see, he had to go up there and taste death for every man. He had to taste death for every man. And I mean a real death. 
real death. And that makes it virtuous. The way he struggled. If it's prophesied, it has to happen. Why should Jesus fast and pray 40 days in the wilderness? If it's all set. See, that's what you call determinism. No, it wasn't determined. It wasn't determined. See, determined is a philosophical word for predestined. And predestined means predetermined. See. No, there's a lot of things. Why, why do you think a lot of these things that he said he, it wasn't his time yet? He wasn't going up there? Some of this stuff was hid from Satan. But he still, he still had to struggle to make it to Calvary. And that makes it all the more love, doesn't it? Boy, he sweat drops of blood, not to keep from going there, but to make it. To make it. If he'd have been stoned to death, he'd have died instantaneously like that from physical causes. And he didn't. He died of a broken heart over sin. The last couple of days, maybe I'll spend on the atonement with you here, if you want me to. But by the way, if I do spend a couple of days on the atonement, I, I don't want one question. And that question is this. Sometimes I go to schools, spend a whole week on the atonement. And invariably, come, somebody comes up and said, Mr. Khan, what did Jesus mean when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I always say, If Jesus didn't know, how in the world do you think I know? <laughs> <laughs> Yet every jack leg preacher in the country has got an answer for that, hasn't he? Yeah. I don't have any answers for it. If Jesus didn't know, I don't know, and I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> and sometimes to some people, the most strategic thing you can say to them is, I don't know. I don't know. If he didn't, I don't. So in providential government, my friends, this is God intervening in the affairs of man, but... Moving into history, into time. It's God acting in time. But to bring about his eternal purposes. And we're not referring to what? Salvation. Salvation. Not refer so, dear friends, don't get this mixed up. This idea of causation, but yet it's there. So now we have looked into three different realms over which God governs. And what's the main characteristic of these three realms? One word. That's right. Certainty. Certainty. God always gets what he wants in these three realms. Why? Because it's cause and effect, and he is the first cause. He's the first cause. But again, I must repeat, I want to say it to you. There's one sixth to one seventh year Bible made up of providential government. And it is not referring to salvation. So, much for that now. And the main characteristic of that is certainty. But now we're going into another realm over which God governs. And the main characteristic of this one is going to be uncertain. Uncertainty. Because it's free. It's free. All right. Now, would somebody please read this for us from the audience? Author of his destiny. Here God says, 
I have called, and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. All right, my dear friends, I want you to back up to your governmental providence, and I want you to look at the second and the fourth words. Somebody tell me what they are. It's abnormal or unusual in providential government. But now, please notice, what is the second word here? Now, this is normal. The other was abnormal. Very rare thing. Very rare thing, and may never happen in most of us, our lives. I hope God doesn't have to move me around by by providential government, don't you? Amen. All right, now, please notice now this second word. Normal course of accountable, oh, here's a word to drive the behaviorist nuts. Self-caused. See, they have nothing self-caused. And if there's nothing self-caused, there's no accountability, there's no responsibility. You see what I'm saying? But the Bible says, whosoever will may what? Come. If the behaviorists are right, we better take out every whosoever will out of the Bible. Is that right? <laughs> you know, my dear friends, there's over 2,000 verses in the Bible indicating man is born with a free will. Over 2,000. But, dear friends, sometimes it has been written and very truthfully and accurately said that sometimes the proponents of the gospel do it more harm than the opponents do. The great Jonathan Edwards, he wrote a book which had done untold harm to Christianity, yet he was a great man of God. He wrote a book called Edwards on the Will. See, he was the president of New Jersey State College of 1648 for two months. That gave him the right to write a book. It's now called Princeton. He wrote a book called Edwards on the Will. In this book, Mr. Edwards says, Man's will always moves in accordance with the strongest motive presented to it. Let me say it again. That's the whole thrust of the whole book. And this terrible thing's been reprinted and republished. Man's will always moves in accordance with the strongest motive presented to it. What's wrong with that statement? What could be a stronger motive than everlasting life? Which would mean everybody gets saved then, wouldn't it? Or what could be a stronger motive than hell? To not want to go there. But does it work like that? No. No, so experience says that's not true. But come on, tell me some more what's wrong with that. Let me give you this statement again. The whole thrust of the book was, man's will always moves in accordance with the strongest motive presented to it. What's wrong with it? It's got a hundred things wrong with it. He's making something moral physical, isn't he? You get that? He's making something that's moral. He's making it physical. That's very good what you just said. It's, but she said, and I hope you folks got it. It's nothing but another form of determinism. That's what's killing the school system today. That's called the mechanistic view of the universe. The mechanistic view of the universe. By the way, in my book, I really handled that one. I kicked the living stuffings out of that thing. <laughs> I hope you'll read it. <laughs> All right, someone else. It also puts Satan on a par with God because it's saying that if a man responds to whatever the strongest pressure is, then it's saying that 
what's going on in the universe is kind of a, an equal battle where these two equally powerful powers, that one gains one day and the other one gains the next day, and man is caught in between going this way. And that's not a very realistic picture of what... Kind of leaves man, as he's kind of a pawn between them, huh? Yeah, I mean, it makes them all kind of equally powerful. God gains ground. Well, if you think about it... Yes, but if you think about it, if the Calvinists is right with their ideas on causation and that God originated sin, created sin, and God is up in heaven directing both sides of a war. Yeah, and I think about it. It's God up in heaven directing both sides of a war if they're correct. But I'm here to tell you they're not correct. You can lay none of this at God's doorstep. I can even go ahead to show you that much of it that God didn't even know was going to happen. Didn't even know that was going to happen. Now that may throw you for a loop. <laughs> that little foray off into omniscience. But the way to define omniscience is that God knows everything that's knowable. Which simply means there's some things not knowable. The future free will acts a man is one of them. How many have ever seen a Dake Bible? D-A-K-E. Assembly of God, brother. Just go in the back of it and look up his definition for omniscience. You'll find it just the way I gave it to you right there. God comes to know certain things. The future free will acts a man. See if you'd agree with this. That which is free cannot be caused. Is that right? Uh-huh. All right. That which is free is accountable. Is that right? Yes. That which is free is responsible. Yes. Providing it is a sentient being. A sentient being, I'll show you here later, is a being that can reason between right and wrong. You wouldn't, hold a, you wouldn't hold a retarded lad accountable for what he would us. Is that right? <laughs> All right, now see if you'll buy this one. I gave you three propositions there in a row. See if you'll buy the fourth one. That which is free cannot be predicted with certainty. Amen. That's right. Or it's not free. That's right. Wow is right. <laughs> wow is right. He said, now I know, Abraham. Don't do that boy any harm. Would you turn your Bibles now to Jeremiah 19.5? Jeremiah 19.5. I didn't mean to get off on the subject of omniscience. Somebody read it for us. Then while he's doing that, someone look up for us Jeremiah 32.35. Will somebody do that? Raise their right hand. All right, then I want somebody to look up for us Jeremiah 7.31. Now, here you're going to see something three times in one book. All right, who will be first to read for us Jeremiah 19.5? Got to write these references down. Jeremiah 19.5, Jeremiah 32.35, Jeremiah 7.31. This is just one of 43 of 4,200 like this in your Bible. All right? Yes. Somebody read Jeremiah 19.5. They have built also the high places of Baal, to burn his sons with fire, to burn offerings with the Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came yet unto my mind. Hey, did he know beforehand he was going to do it? <laughs> he said, never entered my mind they'd do a stupid thing like this. All right, someone read 32.35. Your sons and your daughters to pass through the fire unto Horeb, which I commanded them not, 
neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. All right, there's two times. Now, when God says something to us two times in one book, it ought to be enough. But somebody read for us now, Jeremiah 7.31. they have built the high place for the prophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Okay. Neither even came it into his heart. They do such things. That's a great misuse of the free will. You see, we're going to see here in a little while. All right, now. In free moral action, the normal course of accountable, get this, self-caused action, where a man is allowed to choose between motives presented to the mind to form his own moral character and be sole author of his destiny. So get that, sole author of his destiny. Sole author. What does it mean? What does it mean when we say sole author of his destiny? He sure can, but uh, that's right. Nobody else can choose it for you. They can't determine it, can they? Man is a sole author. God is not willing that any should what? So, God didn't even want Judas to go there. Didn't even want Judas to go there. Said so Judas by transgression fell. Fell. That's what it says. Now you cannot fall off of this thing if you've never been up on it. Can't fall off a chair or a table or anything else if you've never been up on it. So don't tell me that Judas was never saved. Like I was taught. So the normal course of accountable. Now, look, friends. This is the, one of the greatest problems that can grace the mind of man. How can God govern something that's free and not touch it? That's what we're going to be studying tomorrow. How can God govern? How can he regulate? How can he control something without touching it? With no causation. Goes above and beyond phenomenology, doesn't it? Now we're going to get into a realm where science can do nothing. Only theology can handle this problem. I want to ask you this question. Why cannot God govern the sun, the moon, the stars with truth, love, influence, and persuasion? Why can't he? He can't. But why? <laughs> well, each one of you gave me a little tidbit. <laughs> Just, <laughs> why? Let me ask this to you again now. Why cannot God govern the sun, the moon, the stars by truth, love, influence, and persuasion? Our brother is saying here they can't respond. They don't have the exercise of choice. Yes, sir? That's good. Okay, somebody else give me some more. Yes, sir. That's right. It's not physical force. Oh, that's great. Now we're going to see tomorrow then. Why cannot God govern man, free, moral, accountable man, by causation? Well, what else? But by the way, how's most people see how has he got God doing it? Because it's not moral force. That's right. You see, you see what we're talking about? 
Tomorrow, we're going to get into how do you govern something? How do you control it without touching it? <laughs> without putting physical force. This is one of the greatest problems that the mind of man can wrestle with, and only theology and the Bible has the answers. When you go to bed tonight and you get up in the morning, you pray about this. Oh, dear God, I'm facing the greatest problem that there is to man. Would you please, by the grace of your Holy Spirit, enlighten my mind tomorrow. Help me to think. Help me to concentrate now to see how you do this. See how you do this. Because you'll never be an effective servant for him until you know this. Until you know this. All right. Now, let's go a little further. Genesis 1.26 said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. My dear friends, that is a twofold image. It's an image of endowments. It's an image of attitude and disposition of heart. When we say man is made in the image of God, that's about the biggest mouthful you'll ever quote because it's the biggest God you can ever imagine. So it's a twofold image, an image of endowments, an image of attitude and disposition of heart. Now, I want to begin to look into this image of endowments. Now, here they are. First, God has an intellect. He has a mind, memory. So he put that in the man, didn't he? When he created man. God has sensibilities or emotions. He has senses. Put that in the man. God has the ability to choose between various alternatives presented by the mind to the will. Therefore, God can make choices. He can make decisions. And man can make choices. He can make decisions. He'll say, I'll go to school or I won't go to school. I'll get married or I won't get married. By the way, the women can make that too. Quite often they do. The will. This is the greatest mystery of man. Not the mind. We're going to see. And we're going to spend some real time on it. Next one, conscience, that built-in alarm clock that God put into man. Commends you when you do what is right. Clangs and bangs around on you when you do what is wrong. It's like any alarm clock. If you obey it, it's a real blessing. But if you don't, it becomes a pain in the neck. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And can also become insensitive. Insensitive. I've often kidded my wife. When the alarm gets off, she can get up and turn it off, get back in bed, and never miss one snore. <laughs> Why? Because she's done it so many times, see? What I mean? She's become insensitive to it. Now, if your conscience says, no, don't do that, and you keep on doing it pretty soon, it's, it's going to just say, no. You go ahead and do it. That's having a conscience, the scriptures say, seared with a hot iron. It's become insensitive. See that? takes 18 months to develop a conscience back in a person after he's lost his and become insensitive. All right, the next one is a big difference between man and animals. The ability to perceive various relationships, such as social relationships. Saturday night I went to a party. Christian doctor, friend of mine. Wonderful man, loves the Lord. A social relationship. Now, I don't like to go to parties, but... You, after all, my wife is home a lot by herself, and so when you're a married man, you do a lot of things that your wife wants to do, and you should do them. 
After all, people need a social outlet, so we went to the doctor's home. By the way, his wife found out I wasn't very smart. I said to her, I said, Carolyn, where's the bathroom? She took me and led me, and she said, right here. She said, Harry, you're not near as smart as I thought you would. We only got eight of them. You can't even find one. <laughs> Social relationships. All right, civil relationships. You know any animal that has a civil relationship that pays taxes? <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Business relationships. Men go to work Monday morning because of business relationships. Farmers go out in the field because of business, financial relationships. Spiritual relationships. You see these things that man has that animal doesn't have? Why, we're so far above the animals. By the way, do any of you know of anything in your home that was designed, developed, and marketed by an animal that makes your life a little better? Of course you don't. Do any of you know of any unified body of knowledge ever collected and collated by an animal? Listen, this thing of ever teaching man as an animal is ridiculous. But you see, you never will have entertained in your mind any higher concept of God than what you're willing to conform to. And the same thing is true of man. If you're not willing to treat man that he's made in the image of God and he's important and valuable, then you're going to make man an animal. You see that? If you're not willing to treat man as he's made in the image of God and he's valuable and he's important, if you're not willing to treat him like that, then you've got to make an animal out of him and treat him like a dog. That's what they do. That's a tremendous theological truth, but it's true nevertheless. So we have the ability to perceive various relationships, like family relationships, wonderful relationship. It's how your kids can know a lot about our Heavenly Father. I used to pray with my daughter Nancy, and I'd prayed with my daughters every night. I was home, and they were home before they went to bed. One night I said to my daughter Nancy, I said, Nancy, do you think your daddy loves you? She said, oh, yes, daddy, I know you love me. And I said, well, da Nance, this is the kind of relationship that our Heavenly Father wants with you, that I have with you. It's to be a picture in her mind. Only I said, he is, he'll never let you down. He'll never fail you. He is absolutely pure and holy, and I'm sorry I can't say that. But this relationship which you and I have, Nancy, is only symbolical of that great one there that God wants to have with you. You know what my daughter said one time about four or five years ago? She doesn't know this day that I know. She said, it, she said to a girl in church, she said, I hope my daddy dies before I do. The girl said, why? She said, my daddy loves me so much that if I died before he did, he'd die of a broken heart. Isn't that the way God wants our daughters to think of their daddy? Huh? Prayed with them every night before I put them to bed. What a great privilege that was. I used to hate to put them to bed. My wife used to get mad at me. Put them to bed. You know, I didn't want to because it was another day gone out of their little lives I'd never have back. Because <laughs> I enjoyed them so much. A man that doesn't enjoy his kids, he's not normal. You get that? He's not normal. But look, God wants to enjoy us that way. Will you let him? Will you let him? Now think about that. 
Now that we're getting into this, animals. <laughs> you know what you better do with a sow when she just had 16 little piglets? What you better do with the piglets or her? Got any idea? Separate them. Why? She'll eat them. How's that for a family relationship? <laughs> She'll eat them. You're going to tell me that man is an animal? <laughs>